at least until the Twilight series made them cool. Thought of zombies that you and I were most familiar with seemed pretty creepy, right? Dating back to classical literature and early cinema such as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or even the present-day depictions from the super-popular Walking Dead, the zombies we think of are enough to keep that nightlight at the edge of the bed turned on, just in case. Thought to be something out of the mind of an evil genius, these zombies were characterized by their ability to hobble, limp, and stagger mindlessly as if possessed by a force that overtook their once-living body. So, what if I were to tell you that these zombies we portray as fictitious monsters aren't entirely fictional? Welcome to another episode of the Incredible Huck Podcast. Today, I'll be talking about zombies of sorts as we dive deep into the jungles of Thailand to discover and learn about a type of fungal control that takes over the mind and body of its inhabitants. I'm your host, Brian Wistrich, and today we learn about a scientist, no, not a mad scientist, but a scientist named David Hughes, who happens to be the assistant professor of entomology and biology at the Huck Institute of Life Sciences, who will take us through his journey of close encounters with zombie ants. Well, I've always been interested in biology since I was a very young kid. I enjoyed very much um, uh, weekly natural history programs from from the likes of David Attenborough. So I grew up in in the center of of a city, but I'd always really imagined myself being in a rainforest and uh, and and that desire that interest in the natural world really dro- drove me back to pursuing a proper education for me it's particularly ants or, or insect societies mm-hmm. these are this great evolutionary experiment where we see the evolution of sociality we ourselves are social organisms so we live in groups um, and the ants are just intrinsically fascinating you can have a group of 10 100 thousand 10 thousand or 10 million individuals all acting cooperatively and that itself is is, is startling and, and interesting but my research over the last you know, 15 years or so has focused on the parasites that guy he mentioned before david attenborough he was a staple of bbc nature programs and was best known for writing and presenting the nine life series which was extremely popular in britain in the 60s 70s and 80s shows such as life on earth planet earth and the living planet They used amazing data and information to display the beautiful, natural life in our world like never before. And even though Professor Hughes had a curiosity in nature from a young age, it wasn't exactly where he thought his life would take him. I worked on uh, um, construction sites. I worked um, in bars, restaurants, uh, waiter, uh, cycle courier, um, everything like that. And I got back into the school system, um, subsequently went to university and dropped out of university. got back into university and then afterwards got into a PhD program and have subsequently since just enjoyed all this time doing science. So my route to the present position as a professor at Penn State is a a rather unusual one to have taken. Which brings up another point. If you're good at identifying accents, you may have been able to guess that Professor Hughes is not from America, but instead hails from... Dublin. Uh, I grew up in a relatively poor community in Dublin, and nobody in my family had ever finished high school, and I got kicked out of school at the age of 15. Uh, I was always interested in biology, but coming from a poor background, there was no roots to academia and, and figuring out that one could actually go to university and spend a career in science. So I messed around with different dead-end jobs for four or five years. Yup, he got kicked out of school and dropped out of university as well. So how exactly does a poor man from Ireland, with no scientific experience, get on the path to working in the field of insects and parasite behavior? And more so, 
a path that has taken him deep into the jungles of the rainforest. What Professor Hughes calls zombie ants, and what his research documents, is how infections by a parasitic fungus dramatically changes the behavior of tropical carpenter ants. This fungus, known scientifically as Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, infects and then controls the ants in a way that is almost zombie-like, as the ants lose all control of their functions and operate as if being controlled by someone or something else. Professor Hughes's research shows how the ants wander to a specific area in the rainforest after being infected and are left to die in a spot that has optimal conditions for the fungus to reproduce. So after my PhD, uh, I had really gravitated toward the zombie ant system because it was very interesting and basically we knew nothing about it. I knew there was a chap in, from Wales who spent a lot of time in Thailand. He was still there, so I reached out to him. And it was just going into something that was completely unknown. Uh, I tried to reconstruct a lot of the aspects of the behavior by doing uh, various observations and experiments. I'd gone there uh, five or six times in an 18-month period. I spent a lot of time there. And to put in a lot of effort to sort of reconstruct what was happening. Um, and thankfully, it all worked out really well. After three or four years of work, we, we got an understanding of the system. It's working in rainforest, um, no backup, um, no understanding essentially of the system, and, and just pure discovery. It was a phenomenally interesting time. You know what else is phenomenally interesting? A peculiar trait exhibited by the infected ants. They sway and stumble around like students do on College Ave after a late Friday night. The ants leave their nest in the trees and fall to the ground. When the fungus decides it's the right time, the ants make their way to a particular spot and bite down hard on the underside of a leaf. The ants' jaws remain locked on the leaf even as the fungus kills them. And what research shows is that a stalk will emerge and push through the head of the dead ant a few days later to drop spores on the ground, infecting even more naive ants in the vicinity. Kind of creepy, right? Well, it gets creepier, especially when you think about what would make these ants gravitate towards their own death. Well, that's a, the million-dollar question. Now, we don't know. Even now, after 12 years of, of working on this and, and, and really trying to understand that, we don't know. We can, we can advance ideas. Um, so, so we think it's... We know that the biting on the leaf is really important to provide a platform because you're going to kill your host and you're going to release spores from its dead body. So putting it in the ideal location is critical. But how do you get your host to bite into a leaf? Why not something else? And how do you determine that particular part of the leaf? We have absolutely no idea what's happening. We, we have subsequently gone on and now we do a lot of work in our labs here on the mechanisms by which these behavioral controlling parasites can function, but we still don't know the answer to that question. After years of study and research, Professor Hughes has been able to document enough information to generate some patterns, although to the naked eye, most of us wouldn't be able to see any repetition at all. The ants come off the trails, they're, they're manipulated, the fungus at that time is growing inside the body, they come off and then they, they ascend onto these saplings and then they bite. Now, when you gather all these results and you present it, it looks very orchestrated and precise, but when you observe them in nature, these ants are completely haphazard and falling and stumbling. In fact, one of the formal descriptions of this is as a drunkard's walk. If you're drunk, you end up staying in the same place you started, essentially, because you just keep on turning around. And so they com seem completely uncoordinated, they convulse, they, 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 they fall, and yet the precision, when you look at the data overall, is very high. Oh, so the ants are drunk? That makes a little more sense. Remind me to never drink what they're drinking. What's also interesting, though, 
is the timeline as to how long it takes for the chemicals to completely take over, turning the ants into zombies and eventually killing them. It seems very specific. It's around about six hours after biting, at least in the Thai system. Here in North America, it's maybe two or three hours. But you seem to cause the biting behavior, and then very quickly after that, you kill your host. Uh, so having secured the anchor to the platform, then you produce some chemical, presumably, and then you kill it. And we've kind of looked at that already as well in the lab. When Professor Hughes says you, he of course means the fungus, which is the pathological killer, and the chemical produced by the fungus is what actually creates the zombie-like behavior. Now let's jump ahead a little bit to after the fungus has killed its ant host. Remember I mentioned those weird stalks earlier coming out of the heads of the ants after they die? Apparently, that part is based on the climate of where the host insect lives. The stalk first grows uh, within hours, uh, but the lo- you know it takes days before it gets long enough, and then it secondarily produces this essentially football-shaped structure on the side, and that may take between two weeks and, and, and a month in the tropics. But in the U.S., in a temperate system, it takes as much as a year before you get that growing. So there's no spores produced even until the next year, um, and that's because the, the fungus is responding to to the local climate. In the U.S., it actually freezes solid where we work in South Carolina and then overwinters and then comes back again. So the fungus is present in other parts of the world besides Thailand. If this particular fungus is common elsewhere, it was probably adapted to survive in different climates and surroundings. So, so we're reconstructing these elements. And we're not fully sure about what exactly is happening. But we do know that the fungus is producing chemicals which affect this behavior and then ultimately leads in the leaf biting that we saw. But it's not some specific leaf. We look also at this now globally. We started off in Thailand, but we work in, in, in China, uh, Australia, West Africa, in Ghana, and throughout South America, um, Brazil and Colombia, particularly. And in this case, by look, and also in North America, by looking across, we see a range of different aspects of this phenomenon. So in North America, they bite on the twigs, which makes a lot of sense because the leaves fall off in the fall. And so the parasite has responded to global climate change over the last 40 million years to cause the ant to bite into twigs. So there's a lot of variations on a team. We're, we're really at the tip of an iceberg, and it's a very, very large iceberg. When we come back, We'll learn more about Professor Hughes's path to that large iceberg, and he'll also give us a few life lessons that he didn't need a microscope to uncover. You're listening to The Incredible Huck. Stay tuned. back to this episode of the Incredible Hug Podcast. Our music today is brought to you by www.freemusicarchive.com. I think the music is a perfect mix between eerie and ominous. Fitting for our episode today, where we venture deep into the jungles of Thailand to find out about Huck scientist David Hughes and the research he's done with zombie ants and a kind of mind-controlling parasitic fungus. We discussed a lot about Professor Hughes's research and the discoveries he's made during his time in Thailand, but now... Let's talk a little bit more about Professor Hughes's journey to the Huck Institute and what it's like to work there. Uh, I was at Harvard before here. Uh, then I, when I came to the U.S., I decided to stay. I was going to go back to Europe. Um, so then I looked around, and Penn State was an obvious place to be because it's one of the best places in the world to study infectious disease dynamics. So, kicked out of school at age 15, 
dropped out of a university, and now studying host behavior of insects and fungi, pretty much the prime example of taking the road west traveled. In fact, it's a path that sort of characterizes that of the zombie ants, and in some ways, the Huck Institute is kind of like an anthill if you think about it. So many different people doing so many different things, constantly running around, bumping into each other. However, each person has his or her own tasks and responsibilities, and inadvertently, working together by working separately in order to help build an entire system. Pretty interesting, right? It's like every person on Earth has the opportunity to contribute to our world without even knowing it. Because if you're doing science, you should be doing stuff about, about which we don't know. That's the, the essential point of science. And you may be the first person in the history of humanity to make an observation. And maybe if you hadn't been there at that bench, at that ant trail, or wherever you are, maybe that observation will never have been made for the rest of the universe. So you're going to be the first person to ever see anything. And if you had not seen it, maybe nobody else would ever have seen it. That's the beauty of science. You can really find something truly, truly unique. And you'll always have that. No matter where you go or what you do. I was the first person to find this zombie ant biting that leaf in that time. And there's a bazillion other things one can do. So that, I think, is, the, is a great thing. I also say to students um, about lab experiences, it teaches you the stuff you don't like as well. You know, maybe if you're in my lab, you don't like that. You, you want to go to a physics lab or a chemistry lab. It doesn't really matter. So get in if you don't like. Get out. Sample around. This is your university. Uh, take these opportunities. Last but not least, if anyone out there is looking for advice on how to heighten your knowledge or find ways to truly make yourself stand out from your competitors, take it from the man who's traveled around the world in order to put himself right in the middle of it. And the other thing is, um, eventually you're going to graduate and you're going to move on into the real world and you want to be distinguished from all the other students. So, so, so you need reference letters and particularly reference letters that say something specific about you like she was really good in the lab, we had a problem, she dealt with it this way or maybe if you work really hard and you put a lot of effort in maybe you can get a poster to show your results or even a publication and this puts you in you know top teeny tiny percentage of the population and when it comes to sorting out who's going to get the job these tangible things you can take from time spent in a research lab in Penn State are really excellent in distinguishing you. So the professors are friendly, the graduate students are friendly, come join a lab, get the experience, know that you're contributing, don't be nervous about it, and um, it can actually work out really, really well. To learn more about Professor Hughes or any of the previous Huck scientists featured on this podcast, visit www.huck.psu.edu. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Incredible Huck. I'm Brian Wistrich. Until next time.